love and the fulfilling of the law. Here the adversaries urge against us, If thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. Matthew 19.17 Likewise, the doers of the law shall be justified, Romans 2.13, and many other like things concerning the law and works. Before we reply to this, we must first declare what we believe concerning love and the fulfilling of the law. It is written in the prophet Jeremiah 31.33, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. And in Romans 3.31, Paul says, Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. And Christ says, Matthew 19.17, If thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. Likewise, 1 Corinthians 13.3, If I have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. These and similar sentences testify that the law ought to be begun in us and be kept by us more and more. Moreover, we speak not of ceremonies, but of that law which gives commandment concerning the movements of the heart, namely the Decalogue. Because indeed faith brings the Holy Ghost and produces in hearts a new life, it is necessary that it should produce spiritual movements in hearts, and what these movements are, the prophet Jeremiah 31.33 shows, when he says, I will put my law into their inward parts and write it in their hearts. Therefore, when we have been justified by faith and regenerated, we begin to fear and love God, to pray to Him, to expect from Him aid, to give thanks and praise Him, and to obey Him in afflictions. We begin also to love our neighbors, because our hearts have, been, have spiritual and holy movements. These things cannot occur until we have been justified by faith and, regenerated, we receive the Holy Ghost. First, because the law cannot be kept without Christ. And likewise, the law cannot be kept without the Holy Ghost. But the Holy Ghost is received by faith according to the declaration of Paul, Galatians 3.14, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Then, too, how can the human heart love God while it knows that He is terribly angry and is oppressing us with temporal and perpetual calamities? But the law always accuses us, always shows that God is angry. Therefore, God is not loved until we apprehend mercy by faith. Not until then does he become a lovable object. Although, therefore, civil works, that is, the outward works of the law, can be done in a measure without Christ and without the Holy Ghost, nevertheless, it appears from what we have said that those things which belong peculiar, peculiarly to the divine law, that is, the affections of the heart towards God, which are commanded in the first table, cannot be rendered without the Holy Ghost. But our adversaries are fine theologians. They regard the second table and political works. For the first table, they care nothing, as though it were of no matter, or certainly they require only outward observances. They in no way consider that the law is eternal and placed far above the sense and intellect of all creatures. Deuteronomy 6.5 Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart. But Christ was given for this purpose, namely, that for his sake there might be bestowed on us the remission of sins and the Holy Ghost to bring forth in us new and eternal life and eternal righteousness. Wherefore, the law cannot be truly kept unless the Holy Ghost be received through faith. Accordingly, Paul says that the law is established by faith and not made void, because the law can only then be thus kept when the Holy Ghost is given. And Paul teaches, 2 Corinthians 3.15, The veil that covered the face of Moses cannot be removed except by faith in Christ, by which the Holy Ghost is received. For he speaks thus, 
But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Paul understands by the veil the human opinion concerning the entire law, the Decalogue, and the ceremonies, namely, that hypocrites think that external and civil works satisfy the law of God, and that sacrifices and observances justify before God ex opere operato. But then this veil is removed from us, that is, we are freed from this error when God shows to our hearts our uncleanness and the heinousness of sin. Then, for the first time, we see that we are far from fulfilling the law. Then we learn to know how flesh, insecurity and indifference, does not fear God, and is not fully certain that we are regarded by God, but imagines that men are born and die by chance. Then we experience that we do not believe that God forgives and hears us. But when, on hearing the gospel and the remission of sins, we are consoled by faith, we receive the Holy Ghost, so that now we are able to think aright concerning God, and to fear and believe God, etc. From these facts it is apparent that the law cannot be kept without Christ and the Holy Ghost. We therefore profess that it is necessary that the law be begun in us, and that it be observed continually more and more. And at the same time, we comprehend both spiritual movements and external good works. Therefore the adversaries falsely charge against us that our theologians do not teach good works, while they not only require these, but also show how they can be done. The result convicts hypocrites, who by their own powers endeavor to fulfill the law, that they cannot accomplish what they attempt. For human nature is far too weak to be able by its own powers to resist the devil, who holds as captives all who have not been freed through faith. There is need of the power of Christ against the devil, namely, that inasmuch as we know that for Christ's sake we are heard and have the promise, we may pray for the governance and defense of the Holy Ghost, that we may be, neither be deceived and err, nor be impelled to undertake anything contrary to God's will. Just as Psalm 68.16 teaches, Thou hast led captivity captive, Thou hast received gifts for man. For Christ has overcome the devil and has given to us the promise and the Holy Ghost, in order that by divine aid we ourselves also may overcome. And 1 John 3, 8, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Again, we teach not only how the law can be observed, but also how God is pleased if anything be done. Namely, not because we render satisfaction to the law, but because we are in Christ, as we shall say after a little. It is therefore manifest that we require good works. Yea, we add also this, that it is impossible for love to God, even though it be small, to be sundered from faith, because through Christ we come to the Father, and the remission of sins having been received, we now are truly certain that we have a God, that is, that God cares for us, we call upon Him, we give Him thanks, we fear Him, we love Him, as 1 John 4.19 teaches. We love Him because He first loved us, namely, because He gave His Son for us and forgave us our sins, Thus he indicates that faith precedes and love follows. Likewise, the faith of which we speak exists in repentance, that is, it is conceived in the terrors of conscience, which feels the wrath of God against our sins and seeks the remission of sins and to be freed from sin. And in such terrors and other afflictions, this faith ought to grow and be strengthened. Wherefore it cannot exist in those who live according to the flesh, who are delighted by their own lusts and obey them. 
Accordingly, Paul says, Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So too, Romans 8.12 and 13, We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Wherefore, the faith which receives remission of sins in a heart terrified and fleeing from sin does not remain in those who obey their desires, neither does it coexist with mortal sin. From these effects of faith, the adversaries select one, namely love, and teach that love justifies. Thus, it is clearly apparent that they teach only the law. They do not teach that remission of sins through faith is first received. They do not teach of Christ as mediator, that for Christ's sake we have a gracious God, but because of our love. And yet, what the nature of this love is, they do not say, neither can they say. They proclaim that they fulfill the law, although this glory belongs properly to Christ, and they set against the judgment of God confidence in their own works. For they say that they merit de condigno, according to righteousness, grace, and eternal life. This confidence is absolutely impious and vain. For in this life we cannot satisfy the law, because carnal nature does not cease to bring forth wicked dispositions, even though the Spirit in us resists them. But someone may ask, since we also confess that love is a work of the Holy Ghost, and since it is righteousness, because it is the fulfilling of the law, why do we not teach that it justifies? To this we must reply, in the first place, it is certain that we receive remission of sins neither through our love nor for the sake of our love, but for Christ's sake by faith alone. Faith alone, which looks upon the promise and knows that for this reason it must be regarded as certain that God forgives, because Christ has not died in vain, etc., overcomes the terrors of sin and death. If anyone doubts whether sins are remitted him, he dishonors Christ, since he judges that his sin is greater or more efficacious than the death and promise of Christ. Although Paul says, Romans 5.20, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that is, that mercy is more comprehensive than sin. If anyone thinks that he obtains the remission of sins because he loves, he dishonors Christ and will discover in God's judgment that this confidence in his own righteousness is wicked and vain. Therefore, it is necessary that faith reconciles and justifies. And as we do not receive remission of sins through other virtues of the law or on account of these, namely, on account of patience, chastity, obedience toward magistrates, etc., and nevertheless these virtues ought to follow, so too we do not receive remission of sins because of love to God, although it is necessary that this should follow. Besides, the custom of speech is well known that by the same word we sometimes comprehend by synecdoche the cause and effects. Thus, in Luke 7.47, Christ says, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. For Christ interprets himself when he adds, Thy faith hath saved thee. Christ, therefore, did not mean that the woman by that work of love had merited the remission of sins. For that is the reason, he says, thy faith hath saved thee. But faith is that which freely apprehends God's mercy on account of God's word. If anyone denies that this is faith, he does not understand at all what faith is. And the narrative itself shows in this passage what that is which he calls love. The woman came with the opinion concerning Christ that with him the remission of sins should be sought. This worship is the highest worship of Christ. Nothing greater could she ascribe to Christ. 
to seek from him the remission of sins was truly to acknowledge the Messiah. Now thus to think of Christ, thus to worship him, thus to embrace him, is truly to believe. Christ, moreover, employed the word love not towards the woman but against the Pharisee because he contrasted the entire worship of the Pharisee with the entire worship of the woman. He reproved the Pharisee because he did not acknowledge that he was the Messiah, although he rendered him the outward offices due to a guest and a great and holy man. He points to the woman and praises her worship, ointment, tears, etc., all of which were the signs of faith and a confession, namely, that with Christ she sought the remission of sins. It is indeed a great example, which, not without reason, moved Christ to reprove the Pharisee, who was a wise and honorable man, but not a believer. He charges him with impiety and admonishes him by the example of the woman, showing thereby that it is disgraceful to him that while an unlearned woman believes God, he, a doctor of the law, does not believe, does not acknowledge the Messiah, and does not seek from him remission of sins and salvation. Thus, therefore, he praises the entire worship, as it often occurs in the Scriptures, that by one word we embrace many things. As below, we shall speak at greater length in regard to similar passages, such as Luke 11.41, Give alms of such things as ye have, and behold, all things are clean unto you. He requires not only alms, but also the righteousness of faith. Thus he here says, Her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. That is, because she has truly worshipped me with faith and the exercises and signs of faith. He comprehends the entire worship. Meanwhile, he teaches this, that the remission of sins is properly received by faith although love, confession, and other good fruits ought to follow. Wherefore he does not mean this, that these fruits are the price or are the propitiation, because of which the remission of sins which reconciles us to God is given. We are disputing concerning a great subject, concerning the honor of Christ, and whence good minds may seek for sure and firm consolation, whether confidence is to be placed in Christ or in our works, now, if it is to be placed in our works, the honor of mediator and propitiator will be withdrawn from Christ. And yet we shall find, in God's judgment, that this confidence is vain, and that consciences rush thence into despair. But if the remission of sins and reconciliation do not occur freely for Christ's sake, but for the sake of our love, no one will have remission of sins, unless when he has fulfilled the entire law, because the law does not justify as long as it can accuse us. Therefore it is manifest that since justification is reconciliation for Christ's sake, we are justified by faith, because it is very certain that by faith alone the remission of sins is received. Now therefore let us reply to the objection which, which we have above stated. The adversaries are right in thinking that love is the fulfilling of the law, and obedience to the law is certainly righteousness. But they make a mistake in this, that they think that we are justified by the law. Since, however, we are not justified by the law, but receive remission of sins and reconciliation by faith for Christ's sake, and not for the sake of love or the fulfilling of the law, it follows necessarily that we are justified by faith in Christ. Again, this fulfilling of the law or obedience towards the law is indeed righteousness when it is complete, but in us it is small and impure. Accordingly, it is not pleasing for its own sake and is not accepted for its own sake. But although from those things which have been said above, it is evident that justification signifies not the beginning of, of the renewal, but the reconciliation by which also we afterwards are accepted, nevertheless it can now be seen much more clearly that the inchoate fulfilling of the law does not justify, because it is accepted only on account of faith. 
nor must we trust that we are accounted righteous before God by our own perfection and fulfilling of the law, but rather for Christ's sake. First, because Christ does not cease to be mediator after we have been renewed. They err who imagine that he has merited only a first grace, and that afterwards we please God and merit eternal life by our fulfilling of the law. Christ remains mediator, and we ought always to be confident that for his sake we have a reconciled God, even although we are unworthy. As Paul clearly teaches us when he says, 1 Corinthians 4.4, I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified? But he knows that by faith he is accounted righteous for Christ's sake. According to the plat, to the passage, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, Psalm 32.1, Romans 4.7. But this remission is always received by faith. Likewise, the imputation of the righteousness of the gospel is from the promise. Therefore, it is always received by faith, and it always must be regarded certain that by faith we are, for Christ's sake, accounted righteous. If the regenerate ought afterwards to think that they will be accepted on account of the fulfilling of the law, when would conscience be certain that it pleased God, since we never satisfy the law? Accordingly, we must always recur to the promise. By this, our infirmity must be sustained, and we must regard it as certain that we are accounted righteous for the sake of Christ, who is ever at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us, Romans 8.34. If anyone think that he is righteous and accepted on account of his own fulfillment of the law and not on account of Christ's promise, he dishonors this high priest. Neither can it be understood how one could imagine that man is righteous before God when Christ is excluded as propitiator and mediator. Again, what need is there of a long discussion? All Scripture, all the church cries out that the law cannot be satisfied. Therefore, this inchoate fulfillment of the law does not please on its own account, but on account of faith in Christ. Otherwise, the law always accuses us. For who loves or fears God sufficiently? Who, with sufficient patience, bears the afflictions imposed by God? Who does not frequently doubt whether human affairs are ruled by God's counsel or by chance? Who does not frequently doubt whether he has been heard by God? Who is not frequently enraged because the wicked enjoy a better lot than the pious, because the pious are oppressed by the wicked? Who does satisfaction to his own calling? Who loves his neighbor as himself? Who is not tempted by lust? Accordingly, Paul says, Romans 7.19, The good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Likewise, Romans 7.25, With the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Here, he openly declares that he serves the law of sin. And David says, Psalm 143, 2, Enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. Here, even a servant of God prays for the averting of judgment. Likewise, Psalm 32, 2, Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. Therefore, in this our infirmity, there is always present sin, which could be imputed, and of which he says a little while after, Psalm 32.6, For this shall every one that is godly pray unto thee. Here he shows that even saints ought to seek remission of sins. More than blind are those who do not perceive that wicked desires in the flesh are sins, of which Paul, Galatians 5.17, says, The flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. The flesh distrusts God, trusts in present things, seeks human aid in calamities, even contrary to God's will, flees from afflictions which it ought to bear because of God's commands, doubts concerning God's mercy, etc. The Holy Ghost in our hearts contends with such dispositions in order to suppress and mortify them, 
and to produce new spiritual movements. But concerning this topic, we will collect more testimonies below, although they are everywhere obvious, not only in the Scriptures, but also in the Holy Fathers. Well does Augustine say, All the commandments of God are fulfilled when whatever is not done is forgiven. Therefore he requires faith even in good works, in order that we may believe that for Christ's sake we please God, and that even the works are not of themselves worthy and pleasing. And Jerome against the Pelagians says, Then therefore we are righteous when we confess that we are sinners, and that our righteousness consists not in our own merit, but in God's mercy. Therefore, in this inchoate fulfillment of the law, faith ought to be present, which is certain that for Christ's sake we have a reconciled God. For mercy cannot be apprehended unless by faith, as has been repeatedly said above. Wherefore, when Paul says, Romans 3.31, we establish the law through faith, by this we ought to understand, not only that those regenerated by faith receive the Holy Ghost, and have movements agreeing with God's law, but it is by far of the greatest importance that we add also this, that we ought to perceive that we are far distant from the perfection of the law. Wherefore, we cannot conclude that we are accounted righteous before God because of our fulfilling of the law, but in order that the conscience may become tranquil, justification must be sought elsewhere. For we are not righteous before God as long as we flee from God's judgment and are angry with God. Therefore we must conclude that being reconciled by faith we are accounted righteous for Christ's sake, not for the sake of the law or our works, but that this inchoate filling of the law pleases on account of faith, and that on account of faith there is no imputation of the imperfection of the fulfilling of the law, even though the sight of our impurity terrifies us. Now if justification is to be sought elsewhere, our love and works do not therefore justify. Far above our purity, yea, far above the law itself, ought to be placed the death and satisfaction of Christ, presented to us that we might be sure that because of this satisfaction, and not because of our fulfilling of the law, we have a gracious God. Paul teaches this in Galatians 3.13, when he says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. That is, the law condemns all men, but Christ, because without sin he has borne the punishment of sin and been made a victim for us, has removed that right of the law to accuse and condemn those who believe in him, because he himself is the propitiation for them for whose sake we are now accounted righteous. But since they are accounted righteous, the law cannot accuse or condemn them, even though they have not actually satisfied the law. To the same purport he writes to the Colossians 2.10, Ye are complete in him, as though he were to say, Although ye are still far from the perfection of the law, yet the remnants of sin do not condemn you, because for Christ's sake we have a sure and firm reconciliation, if you believe, even though sin inhere in your flesh. The promise ought always to be in sight, that God, because of his promise, wishes for Christ's sake, and not because of the law or our works, to be gracious and to justify. In this promise, timid consciences ought to seek reconciliation and justification. By this promise, they ought to sustain themselves and be confident that for Christ's sake, because of his promise, they have a gracious God. Thus works can never render a conscience pacified, but only the promise can. If, therefore, justification and peace of conscience must be sought elsewhere than in love and works, love and works do not justify, although they are virtues and pertain to the righteousness of the law, insofar as they are a fulfilling of the law. So far also, this obedience of the law justifies by the righteousness of the law. But this imperfect righteousness of the law is not accepted by God 
unless on account of faith. Accordingly, it does not justify. That is, it neither reconciles, nor regenerates, nor by itself renders us accepted before God. From this, it is evident that we are justified before God by faith alone. Because by faith alone, we receive remission of sins and reconciliation. Because reconciliation or justification is a matter promised for Christ's sake and not for the sake of the law. Therefore, it is received by faith alone, although when the Holy Ghost is given, the fulfilling of the law follows. Reply to the Arguments of the Adversaries Now, when the grounds of this case have been understood, namely the distinction between the law and the promises or the gospel, it will be easy to resolve the objections of the adversaries. For they cite passages concerning the law and works and omit passages concerning the promises. But a reply can once for all be made to all opinions concerning the law, namely, that the law cannot be observed without Christ, and that if civil works are wrought without Christ, they do not please God. Wherefore, when works are commended, it is necessary to add that faith is required, that they are commended on account of faith, that they are the fruits and testimonies of faith. Ambiguous and dangerous cases may produce many and various solutions. For the judgment of the ancient poet is true. An unjust cause, being in itself sick, requires skillfully applied remedies. But in just and sure cases, one or two explanations derived from the sources correct all things that seem to offend. This occurs also in this case of ours. For the rule which I have just recited explains all the passages that are cited concerning the law and works. For we acknowledge that Scripture teaches in some places the law and in other places the gospel, or the gratuitous promise of the remission of sins for Christ's sake. But our adversaries absolutely abolish the free promise when they deny that faith justifies and teach that for the sake of love and of our works we receive remission of sins and reconciliation. If the remission of sins depends upon the condition of our works, it is altogether uncertain. For we can never be certain whether we do enough works or whether our works are sufficiently holy and pure. Thus, too, the forgiveness of sins is made uncertain, and the promise of God perishes. As Paul says, Romans 4.14, The promise is made of none effect, and everything is rendered uncertain. Therefore the promise will be abolished. Hence, we refer godly minds to the consideration of the promises, and we teach concerning the free remission of sins and concerning reconciliation, which occurs through faith in Christ. Afterwards, we add also the doctrine of the law. And it is, it is necessary to divide these things aright, as Paul says, 2 Timothy 2.15. We must see what Scripture ascribes to the law and what to the promises. For it praises works in such a way as not to remove the free promise. For good works are to be done on account of God's command, likewise for the exercise of faith, and on account of confession and giving of thanks. For these reasons good works ought necessarily to be done, which, although they are done in the flesh, not as yet entirely renewed, that retards the movements of the Holy Ghost and imparts some of its uncleanness. Yet on account of Christ are holy, divine works, sacrifices, and acts pertaining to the government of Christ, who thus displays his kingdom before this world. For in these he sanctifies hearts and represses the devil, and, in order to retain the gospel among men, openly opposes to the kingdom of the devil the confession of saints, and in our weakness declares his power. The dangers, labors, and sermons of the Apostle Paul, of Athanasius, Augustine, and the like, who taught the churches are holy works, are true sacrifices acceptable to God, are contests of Christ, through which he repressed the devil, and drove him from those who believed.
David's labors in waging wars and in his home government are holy works, true sacrifices, are contests of God, defending the people who had the word of God against the devil, in order that the knowledge of God might not be entirely extinguished on earth. We think thus also concerning every good work in the humblest callings and in private affairs. Through these works, Christ celebrates his victory over the devil, just as the distribution of alms by the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 16, 1, was a holy work and a sacrifice and contest of Christ against the devil, who labors that nothing may be done for the praise of God. To disparage such works, the confession of doctrine, affliction, works of love, mortifications of the flesh, would be indeed to disparage the outward government of Christ's kingdom among men. Here also we add something concerning rewards and merits. We teach that rewards have been offered and promised to the works of believers. We teach that good works are meritorious, not for the remission of sins, for grace or justification. For these we obtain only by faith, but for other rewards, bodily and spiritual, in this life and after this life. Because Paul says, 1 Corinthians 3, 8, Every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. There will, therefore, be different rewards according to different labors, but the remission of sins is alike and equal to all, just as Christ is one and is offered freely to all who believe that for Christ's sake their sins are remitted. Therefore, the remission of sins and justification are received only by faith and not on account of any works, as is evident in the terrors of conscience, because none of our works can be opposed to God's wrath. As Paul clearly says, Romans 5.1, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we also have access by faith, etc., but because faith makes sons of God, it also makes co-heirs with Christ. Therefore, because by our works we do not merit justification, through which we are made sons of God and co-heirs with Christ, we do not by our works merit eternal life. For faith obtains this, because faith justifies us and has a reconciled God. But eternal life is due the justified, according to the passage Romans 8.30 whom he justified, them he also glorified. Paul, Ephesians 6.2, commends to us the commandment concerning honoring parents, by mention of the reward which is added to that commandment, where he does not mean that obedience to parents justifies us before God, but that when it occurs in those who have been justified, it merits other great rewards. Yet God exercises his saints variously and often defers the rewards of the righteousness and works uh, righteousness of works in order that they may learn not to trust in their own righteousness and may learn to seek the will of God rather than the rewards as appears in Job in Christ and other saints and of this many psalms teach us which console us against the happiness of the wicked as psalm 37:1 neither be thou envious. And Christ says, Matthew 5.10, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. By these praises of good works, believers are undoubtedly moved to do good works. Meanwhile, the doctrine of repentance is also proclaimed against the godless, whose works are wicked, and the wrath of God is displayed, which he has threatened all who do not repent. We therefore praise and require good works, and show many reasons why they ought to be done. Thus of works, Paul also teaches when he says, Romans 4, 9, that Abraham received circumcision, not in order that by this work he might be justified, for by faith he had already attained it, that he was accounted righteous. But circumcision was added in order that he might have in his body a written sign, admonished by which he might exercise faith, and by which also he might confess his faith before others, and by his testimony might invite others to believe. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice, Hebrews 
Because, therefore, he was just by faith, the sacrifice which he made was pleasing to God. Not that by this work he merited the remission of sins and grace, but that he exercised his faith and showed it to others, in order to invite them to believe. Although in this way good works ought to follow faith, men who cannot believe and be sure that for Christ's sake they are freely forgiven, and that freely for Christ's sake they have a reconciled God, employ works far otherwise. When they see the works of saints, they judge in a human manner that saints have merited the remission of sins and grace through these works. Accordingly, they imitate them and think that through similar works they merit the remission of sins and grace. They think that through these works they appease the wrath of God and attain that for the sake of these works they are counted righteous. This godless opinion concerning works we condemn. In the first place, because it obscures the glory of Christ when men offer to God these works as a price and propitiation. This honor, due to Christ alone, is ascribed to our works. Secondly, they nevertheless do not find in these works peace of conscience, but in true terrors, heaping up works upon works, they at length despair because they find no work sufficiently pure. The law always accuses and produces wrath. Thirdly, such persons never attain the knowledge of God, for as in anger they flee from God, who judges and afflicts them, they never believe that they are heard. But faith manifests the presence of God, since it is certain that God freely forgives and hears us. Moreover, this godless opinion concerning works has always existed in the world. The heathen had sacrifices derived from the fathers. They imitated their works. Their faith they did not retain, but thought that the works were a propitiation and price on account of which God would be reconciled to them. The people in the law imitated sacrifice with the opinion that by means of these works they would appease God so to say, ex opera operato. We see here how earnestly the prophets rebuke the people. Psalm 58, I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices. And Jeremiah 7.22, I spake not unto your fathers concerning burnt offerings. Such passages condemn not works which God certainly had commanded as outward exercises in this government but they condemn the godless opinion according to which they thought that by these works they appeased the wrath of God and thus cast away faith. And because no works pacify the conscience, new works, in addition to God's commands, were from time to time devised. The people of Israel had seen the prophets sacrificing on high places. Besides, the examples of the, the saints very greatly moved the minds of those hoping by similar works to obtain grace, just as these saints obtained it. But the saints believed. Wherefore the people began with remarkable zeal to imitate this work, in order that by such a work they might merit remission of sins, grace, and righteousness. But the prophets had been sacrificing on high places, not that by these works they might merit the remission of sins and grace, but because on these places they taught and accordingly presented there a testimony of their faith. The people had heard that Abraham had sacrificed his son. Wherefore they also, in, appease, in order to appease God by a most cruel and difficult work, put to death their sons. But Abraham did not sacrifice his son with the opinion that this work was a price and propitiatory work for the sake of which he was accounted righteous, Thus in the church the Lord's Supper was instituted that by remembrance of the promises of Christ, of which we are admonished in this sign, faith might be strengthened in us, and we might publicly confess our faith and proclaim the benefits of Christ, as Paul says, 1 Corinthians 11.26, As often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death, etc. But our adversaries contend that the Mass is a work that justifies us ex opera operato, and removes the guilt and liability to punishment in those for whom it is celebrated, 
For thus writes Gabriel, Anthony, Bernard, Dominicus, Franciscus, and other holy fathers selected a certain kind of life either for the sake of study or other useful exercises. In the meantime, they believed that by faith they were accounted righteous for Christ's sake and that God was gracious to them, not on account of those exercises of their own. But the multitude since then has not imitated the faith of the fathers, but their example without faith, in order that by such works they might merit the remission of sins, grace, and righteousness, they did not believe that they received these freely on account of Christ as propitiator. Thus the world judges of all works that they are a propitiation by which God is appeased, that they are a price because of which we are accounted righteous. It does not believe that Christ is propitiator. It does not believe that by faith we freely attain that we are accounted righteous for Christ's sake. And nevertheless, since works cannot pacify the conscience, others are continually chosen, new rites are performed, new vows made, and new orders of monks formed beyond the command of God, in order that some great work might be sought which may be set against the wrath and judgment of God. Contrary to Scripture, the adversaries uphold these godless opinions concerning works. But to ascribe to our works these things, namely, that they are a propitiation, that they merit the remission of sins and grace, that for the sake of these and not by faith, for the sake of Christ as propitiator, we are accounted righteous before God. What else is this than to deny Christ the honor of mediator and propitiator? Although therefore we believe and teach that good works must necessarily be done, for the in short fulfilling of the law ought to follow faith. Nevertheless, we give to Christ his own honor. We believe and teach that by faith for Christ's sake, we are accounted righteous before God, that we are not accounted righteous because of works without Christ as mediator, that by works we do not merit the remission of sins, grace, and righteousness, that we cannot set our works against the wrath and justice of God, that works cannot overcome the terrors of sin, but that the terrors of sin are overcome by faith alone, that only Christ the Mediator is to be presented by faith against the wrath and judgment of God. If anyone think differently, he does not give Christ due honor, who has been set forth that he might be a propitiator, that through him we might have access to the Father. We are speaking now of the righteousness through which we treat with God, not with men, but by which we apprehend grace and peace of conscience. Conscience, however, cannot be pacified before God unless by faith alone, which is certain that God for Christ's sake is reconciled to us, according to Romans 5.1. Being justified by faith, we have peace, because justification is only a matter freely promised for Christ's sake, and therefore is always received by God by, before God by faith alone. Now then, we will reply to those passages with which the adversaries cite, in order to prove that we are justified by love and works. From 1 Corinthians 13.2 they cite, Though I have all faith, etc., and have not charity, I am nothing. And here they triumph greatly. Paul testifies to the entire church, they say, that faith alone does not justify. But a reply is easy after we have shown above what we hold concerning love and works. The passage of Paul requires love. We also require this. For we have said above that renewal and the inchoate fulfilling of the law must exist in us. According to Jerome 31.33, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. If anyone should cast away love, even though he have great faith, yet he does not retain it, for he does not retain the Holy Ghost. Nor indeed does Paul in this passage treat of the mode of justification, but he writes to those who, after they had been justified, should be urged to bring forth good fruits, lest they might lose the Holy Ghost. 
The adversaries, furthermore, treat the matter preposterously. They cite this one passage in which Paul teaches concerning fruits. They omit very many other passages in which, in a regular order, he discusses the mode of justification. Besides, they always add a correction to the, to the other passages which treat of faith, namely, that they ought to be understood as applying to fides formata. Here, they add no correction that there is also need of the faith that holds that we are accounted righteous for the sake of Christ as propitiator. Thus, the adversaries exclude Christ from justification and teach only a righteousness of the law. But let us return to Paul. No one can infer anything more from this text than that love is necessary. This we confess. So also not to commit theft is necessary. But the reasoning will not be correct if someone would desire to frame thence an argument such as this. Not to commit theft is necessary, therefore not to commit theft justifies. Because justification is not the approval of a certain work, but of the entire person. Hence, this passage from Paul does not harm us. Only the adversaries must not in imagination add to it whatever they please. For he does not say that love justifies, but, and if I have not love, I am nothing. Namely, that faith, however great it may have been, is extinguished. He does not say that love overcomes the terrors of sin and of death, that we can set our love against the wrath and judgment of God, that our love satisfies God's law that without Christ as propitiator we have access by our love to God, that by our love we receive the promised remission of sins, Paul says nothing of this. He does not therefore think that love justifies because we are justified only when we apprehend Christ as propitiator and believe that for Christ's sake God is reconciled to us. Neither is justification even to be dreamed of with the omission of Christ as propitiator. If there be no need of Christ, if by our love we can overcome death, if by our love without Christ as propitiator we have access to God, then let our adversaries remove the promise concerning Christ, then let them abolish the gospel. The adversaries corrupt very many passages because they bring to them their own opinions and do not derive the meaning from the passages themselves. For what difficulty is there in this passage if we remove the interpretation which the adversaries, who do not understand what justification is or how it occurs, out of their own mind attach to it? The Corinthians, being justified before, had received many excellent gifts. In the beginning they glowed with zeal, just as generally the case. Then dissensions began to arise among them, as Paul indicates they began to dislike good teachers. Accordingly, Paul reproves them, recalling them to offices of love. Although these are necessary, yet it would be foolish to imagine that the works of the second table, through which we have to do with man and not properly with God, justify us. But in justification we have to treat with God. His wrath must be appeased and conscience must be pacified with respect to God. None of these occur through the works of the second table. But they object that love is preferred to faith and hope. For Paul says, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, the greatest of these is charity. Now, it is reasonable that the greatest and chief virtue should justify, although Paul in this passage properly speaks of love towards one's neighbor, and indicates that love is the greatest because it has the most fruits. Faith and hope have to do only with God, but love has infinite offices externally towards men. Nevertheless, let us indeed grant to the adversaries that love towards God and our neighbor is the greatest virtue, because the chief commandment is this, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. But how will they infer thence that love justifies? 
the greatest virtue they say justifies? By no means. For just as even the greatest or first law does not justify, so also the greatest virtue of the law does not justify. But that virtue justifies which apprehends Christ, which communicates to us Christ's merits, by which we receive grace and peace from God. But this virtue is faith. For as it has often been said, faith is not only knowledge, but much rather willing to receive or apprehend those things which are offered in the promise concerning Christ. Moreover, this obedience towards God, namely to wish to receive the offered promise, is no less a divine service, latreia, than is love. God wishes us to believe Him and to receive from Him blessings, and this He declares to be true divine service. But the adversaries ascribe justification to love because they everywhere teach and require the righteousness of the law. For we cannot deny that love is the highest work of the law, and human wisdom gazes at the law and seeks in it justification. Accordingly, also the scholastic doctors, great and talented men, proclaim this as the highest work of the law, and ascribe to this work justification. But deceived by human wisdom, they did not look upon the uncovered but upon the veiled face of Moses, just as the Pharisees, philosophers, Mahometans. But we preach the foolishness of the gospel, in which another righteousness is revealed, namely, that for the sake of Christ as propitiator, we are accounted righteous when we believe that for Christ's sake God has been reconciled to us. Neither are we arrogant how far distant this doctrine is from the judgment of reason and of the law. Nor are we ignorant that the doctrine of the law concerning love makes a greater show, for it is wisdom. But we are not ashamed of the foolishness of the gospel. For the sake of Christ's glory we defend this and beseech Christ by his Holy Ghost to aid us that we may be able to make this clear and manifest. The adversaries in the confutation have also cited against us Colossians 3.14, charity which is the bond of perfectness. From this, they infer that love justifies because it renders men perfect. Although a reply concerning perfection could here be made in many ways, yet we will simply recite the meaning of Paul. It is certain that Paul spoke of love towards one's neighbor. Neither must we indeed think that Paul would ascribe either justification or perfection to the works of the second table rather than to those of the first. And if love render men perfect, there will, be, there will then be no need of Christ as propitiator. For faith apprehends Christ only as propitiator. This, however, is far distant from the meaning of Paul, who never suffers Christ to be excluded as propitiator. Therefore he speaks not of personal perfection, but of the integrity common to the church. For on this account, he says that love is a bond or connection to signify that he speaks of the binding and joining together with each other of the many members of the church. For just as in all families and in all states, concord should be nourished by mutual offices and tranquility cannot be retained unless men overlook and forgive certain mistakes among themselves. So Paul commands that there should be love in the church in order that it may preserve concord, bear with the harsher manners of brethren as there is need, overlook certain less serious mistakes, lest the church fly apart into various schisms, and enmities and factions and heresies arise from the schisms. For concord must necessarily be rent asunder whenever either the bishops impose upon the people heavier burdens or have no respect to weakness in the people. And dissensions arise when the people judge too severely concerning the conduct of teachers or despise the teachers because of certain less serious faults, for then both another kind of doctrine and other teachers are sought after. On the other hand, perfection that is, the integrity of the church, is preserved when the strong bear with the weak, 
when the people take in good part some faults in the conduct of their teachers, when bishops make some allowances for the weaknesses of the people. Of these precepts of equity, the books of all the wise are full, namely, that in everyday life we should make many allowances mutually for the sake of common tranquility. And of this, Paul frequently teaches both here and elsewhere. Wherefore the adversaries argue indiscreetly from the term perfection that love justifies, while Paul speaks of common integrity and tranquility. And thus Ambrose interprets this passage. Just as a building is said to be perfect or entire when all its parts are fitly joined together with one another. Moreover, it is disgraceful for the adversaries to preach so much concerning love while they nowhere exhibit it. What are they now doing? They are rending asunder churches, they are writing laws in blood, and are proposing to the most clement prince, the emperor, that these should be promulgated. They are slaughtering priests and other good men. If anyone have slightly intimated that he does not entirely approve some manifest abuse, these things are not consistent with those declamations of love, which, if the adversaries would follow, the churches would be tranquil and the state have peace. For these tumults would be quieted if the adversaries would not insist with too much bitterness upon certain traditions, useless for godliness, most of which not even those very persons observe who most earnestly defend them. But they easily forgive themselves, and yet do not likewise forgive others, according to the passage in the poet, I forgive myself, Mavius said. But this is very far distant from those encomiums of love which they here recite from Paul, nor do they understand the word any more than the walls which give it back. From Peter, they cite also this sentence, 1 Peter 4, 8, Charity shall cover the multitude of sins. It is evident that also Peter speaks of a love towards one's neighbor, because he joins this passage to the precept by which he commands that they should love one another. Neither could it have come into the mind of any apostle that our love overcomes sin and death, that love is the propitiation on account of which, to the exclusion of Christ as mediator, God is reconciled, that love is righteousness without Christ as mediator. For this love, if there would be any, would be a righteousness of the law and not of the gospel, which promises to us reconciliation and righteousness if we believe that for the sake of Christ as propitiator, the Father has been reconciled, and that the merits of Christ are bestowed on us. Peter accordingly urges us a little before to come to Christ that we may be built upon Christ. And he adds 1 Peter 2, 4-6, He that believeth on him shall not be confounded. When God judges and convicts us, our love does not free us from confusion. But faith in Christ liberates us in these fears, because we know that for Christ's sake we are forgiven. Besides, this sentence concerning love is derived from Proverbs 10.12, where the antithesis clearly shows how it ought to be understood. Hatred stirreth up strifes, but love covereth all sins. It teaches precisely the same thing as that passage of Paul taken from Colossians, that if any dissensions would occur, they should be moderated and settled by our equitable and lenient conduct. Dissensions, it says, increase by means of hatred, as we often see that from the most trifling offenses, tragedies arise. Certain trifling offenses occurred between Gaius Caesar and Pompey, in which, if the one had yielded a very little to the other, civil war would not have arisen. But while each indulged his own hatred, from a matter of no account, the greatest commotions arose. And many heresies have arisen in the church only from the hatred of the teachers. Therefore it does not refer to a person's own faults, but to the faults of others when it says, Charity covereth sins, namely those of others, and that too among men. That is, even though these offenses occur, yet love overlooks them, forgives, yields, and does not carry all things to the extremity of justice. Peter, therefore, does not mean that love merits in God's sight the remission of sins, 
that it is a propitiation to the exclusion of Christ as mediator, that it regenerates and justifies, but that it is not morose, harsh, intractable towards men, that it overlooks some mistake of its friends, that it takes in good part even the harsher manners of others, just as the well-known maxim enjoins, No, but do not hate the manners of a friend. Nor was it without design that the apostle taught so frequently concerning this office what the philosophers call leniency. For this virtue is necessary for retaining public harmony, which cannot last unless pastors and churches mutually overlook and pardon many things.